exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. The grace of Jesus is powerful enough to save and it's powerful enough to restore. When I got here about a year and a half ago, I chose to go through the gospel of John because the sense that I got, just the overall vibe from this church is that many of you were tired and discouraged that after a year and a half of not having a pastor, after going through COVID, I know there were many people in the church that that were fearful that the church itself would not make it, that it would end up like the other four churches of Brant Lake. And, And so I prayed a lot and I ended up choosing the Gospel of John as our first series, primarily because I wanted to remind a lot of you of your first love. I wanted to remind you over and over again of the Savior who first saved you. I wanted to remind you of the gospel message that that we're called to bring to the nations and to our neighbors. And and I'll tell you that the gospel of John has been a much better choice than I could have ever imagined. It's spoken to situations that I hadn't even been thinking of whenever I, I chose that. And I hope you've been blessed by this study. I know I have. Um, that, that we're no longer a, a ship without, or a, a, a church without a mission, like a ship without a rudder. We have a mission. We have a message. And, and my prayer is that this church overall is much more hopeful today than we were two years ago. So I hope you, you leave this study with a new love for the scriptures. If you haven't already, turn your Bibles to John chapter 21. John 21. And as you're turning... Let me remind you that we've seen Jesus die. We've seen Jesus rise from the dead. He appeared to Mary in the garden. He appeared to the apostles, even to doubting Thomas. And sometimes people often get confused when they come to John chapter 21, because if you ended the gospel of John right after chapter 20, it would have been a perfect ending. It seems like that's the end of the story. Jesus has appeared. He's resurrected. What, what more is there to tell? But there is one major loose end that still needs to be taken care of. What do we do about the apostle Peter? You see, when people, when, uh, people were called to follow Jesus by Jesus, Jesus would say things like, if anyone is not willing to take up his cross and follow me, then they are not worthy of being my disciple." Jesus said things like, if anyone is ashamed of me in this life, I will be ashamed of him before the Father. That oftentimes Jesus would give hardcore requirements for being his disciples. And in the early church, a lot of people took those literally and seriously, as they should have. Dying for your faith in the first several centuries of Christianity was not that uncommon. If you lived under Roman rule 2,000 years ago, you could worship whatever gods you wanted, sure, but you had to also worship Caesar by declaring Caesar as Lord and then offering incense to Caesar on the altar of Caesar. And of course, the problem was that we as Christians refused to worship anyone but the triune God of the Bible. So when Christians were rounded up and threatened with death, most often they would declare Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar as Lord, and then they would go to their deaths. But there was an instance in the early church where two men in particular, they were rounded up, they were asked to deny Jesus, and they did so. They declared Caesar as Lord, and they offered incense on the altar of Caesar, and their lives were spared. 
But when they went back to the church, these two men were kept out of the church. They were removed from membership. They were denied communion. Even after the point that they were repentant and they wanted to apologize for what they'd done. And it was a huge debate in the early church. What do we do with these men who have fallen from grace so spectacularly? And then that brings us to Peter. In John 21, we come to this story where Peter had denied Jesus three times already. And if it was an issue for those two men early in church history, the many people in the early church would have probably had questions about whether Peter was fit to serve as an apostle. Can we trust the sermons he gave? Can we trust the letters that he wrote? Can we trust anything that Peter did if he denied Jesus? And it also raises a couple of questions for us today. Can we be restored if we fall like Peter did? It also raises questions for the church. How should we respond when other Christians fall like Peter did? I know many Christians who started their Christian lives with a lot of energy and passion and zeal. And then at one point they backslid and they fell hard into old sins like addictions and immorality. Is it possible for those of us who've fallen hard to be restored? And then once again, as a church, what do we do when a Christian, someone who started off so well and was running the race so well, what do we do when they cheat on their spouse? What do we do when they abandon their family or walk away from the church or deny Christ altogether? Well, the good news is that the grace of Jesus is powerful enough to save and it's powerful enough to restore. And my prayer this morning is that we would embrace the grace of restoration. Because in John 21, we're going to find three truths about restoration. Three truths about restoration. First, restoration is possible because Jesus is gracious. We'll see that in verses 1 to 14. Secondly, in verses 15 through 17, restoration requires repentance. And thirdly, in verses 18 through 25, restoration is displayed in following Jesus. Restoration is possible because Jesus is gracious. It requires repentance and it's displayed in following Jesus. So let's pray and let's end our study of this glorious gospel. Oh God of all grace, thank you for speaking through your servant, John. We weren't given every story of everything Jesus did, but we were given all the stories we needed to know the truth, to trust the truth and believe the truth. So Lord, this morning, by the power of your spirit, may we understand the glorious truth of this passage. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Look with me to verses one through three. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to them, we will go with you. And they went out and got into a boat. But that night they caught nothing. And stop right there. We've been to the Sea of Tiberias before in this gospel. It was the last time we were there. We saw Jesus multiply the fish and the bread. This was in the northern part of Israel, close to where these seven men were from. And Jesus had told these men, we read at the end of Mark's gospel, he told them, go ahead of him and wait for him back in Galilee. So here these men are back in Galilee waiting for Jesus, waiting on Jesus to appear. 
And while they're waiting, they get hungry. So naturally, they go fishing. In Galilee, everyone knew that the best time for fishing was at night. So these disciples go out at the best time to fish at night. And they don't catch a single fish. But then we read in verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Stop there. Now, if you know your Bible, this story should remind you of another time when the disciples were fishing. Because back in Luke 5, Jesus was preaching and the crowds were so large that they were pressing in on Jesus and Jesus had to step out onto a boat and they pushed the boat out onto the water so that he could preach without being crushed by the crowds. And then after he's finished teaching, Jesus tells Peter to cast his net uh, down on the other side of the boat. Back in Luke 5, instead of listening to Jesus, Peter said, Master, we worked hard all night, but I will do as you say. And so they let down the nets and there were so many fish that their nets began to break and the boats began to sink because there were so many fish. So Peter sees everything that's happening back in Luke 5 and he he falls at Jesus' feet and he says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. But in John 21, we see a very different Peter. As they're pulling in the fish in verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who we know is John, the author of this gospel, The disciple whom Jesus loved recognizes Jesus and he tells Peter, and this time, instead of fleeing away from Jesus, he shamelessly jumps into the water to get to Jesus as quickly as he can. He's about a football field away, so he just dives in and leaves the other disciples to take in the boat. And then in verse 9, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And stop there again. Throughout our study of John, we've seen seven miracles or seven signs, which were all leading up to the sign of signs of John's gospel, the resurrection of Jesus. But here in John 21, we find what many theologians called the bonus sign of this gospel. On their own, they could catch nothing. But at the command of Jesus, the disciples pull in such an overwhelming catch that even though there were 153 fish, The nets did not break. And of course, this miracle gets overshadowed because Jesus shows up. Once they're all on shore, Jesus serves them breakfast and eats with them, which is in and of itself amazing because it tells us what? It tells us that Jesus rose with a physical body, that Jesus did not rise as some kind of ghost or spirit, 
but he had a, res a recognizable resurrection body that could eat and drink. And just as a side note for the Christians in this room, let me tell you why that's so important. Because we as Christians are looking forward to the day when we will be resurrected with a resurrection like Jesus's. He rose physically, and so we hold on to the hope that one day we too will be raised physically. Not as ghosts and spirits, but he miraculously and physically rose from the grave, and we as a people are banking our eternities on it. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ be not raised from the dead, then we of all people are most to be pitied. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we have no hope of resurrection. But in John 21, we read that he did physically rise from the dead. And not only that, but he revealed himself again and again and again to his disciples and even ate and drank with them. Now look back to verse 9. John tells us that the fire was charcoal. And I don't think he's just doing that accidentally or incidentally. I think he mentions it was charcoal fire because he wants to remind us of something. When was the last time we saw a charcoal fire in the Gospel of John? The last time we saw a charcoal fire was in John 18, when Peter was warming himself as Jesus was on trial. And it was by that charcoal fire that Peter denied Jesus for the second and third time. Of the five senses, the sense of smell is most closely associated with memory. Most of you know the feeling of smelling something and suddenly being reminded the last time that you smelled that smell. Well, you can imagine what was going through Peter's mind as he came to soar and smelled that burning charcoal. The Gospel of Luke actually tells us that as Peter was around the fire and as he denied Jesus for a third time, Peter and Jesus made eye contact in that moment. And then Peter went out from the courtyard and he wept bitterly. And so here we are once again around a charcoal fire with Jesus and Peter. So what does Jesus do? Jesus does not scold Peter. He does not rebuke him. He doesn't yell at him. And Jesus' greatest hour of despair, Peter three times denied even knowing Jesus and ran for his own life. And now in this moment of reunification, Jesus does not bring his anger or his condemnation or harsh words, but he welcomes Peter to a meal. Before the resurrection, Jesus bent down and washed his disciples' feet. And now after his resurrection, he makes them breakfast and he serves them. That despite everything Peter had done, despite Thomas refusing to believe, despite the rest of the disciples save John abandoning him, Jesus still shows his grace in bending down and serving them. In the same place where Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish and fed the 5,000, he miraculously and graciously prepared a meal for his disciples. And there's something in here for us that no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've strayed, no matter how many times you have denied Jesus with your thoughts, words, and actions, Jesus stands ready to receive you by his grace. Jesus stands with open arms and commands us, come as you are. That that is the gracious news of the gospel. You are not beyond his forgiving grace. 
You do not have to clean yourself up to come to him. No, you come to Jesus and he cleans you up. That's why he died on the cross to suffer for all of our sins, past, present, and future. If Jesus only died for our sins up until the point in which we first believed, none of us is going to heaven. None of us. Because all of us fall, even after we've been born again. We all from time to time desperately need restoration. And if you'll come to him in repentance and faith, whether for the first time or the 400th time, his grace is more than enough to cover your sin and your shame. And that's the first, first truth about restoration we find in this passage. Restoration is possible because Jesus is gracious. And the second truth is this. Restoration requires repentance. Before we move on in this passage, I just want to say something about what we're about to read. Uh, we're about to read the famous conversation where Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter responds three times, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And I've heard this passage preached about a half dozen times. And every time that I, I, I've heard it preached, it's been well-meaning and godly preachers. And they've made a big deal about the two kinds of loves that we see in these verses. That, that Jesus actually asked Peter in verse 15, do you agape me more than these? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. That agape was seen as the divine, unconditional kind of love. And phileo was seen as love between family members. And when I've heard this preach, I've heard something like Jesus is asking Peter if he truly loves him, but Peter can't say that he truly loves him. He can't say he agape loves Jesus. He only phileo loves Jesus, only loves Jesus like a, a family member. And, and that was even what I was prepared to preach when I got to this passage. And I just studied and studied and said, that's not what this is saying. I don't think that's what's, ha what's happening here. Here's why. First, even though the two words carry those different meanings, John uses both words for love interchangeably throughout his gospel. Even in verse 17, we'll see that he switches up the word uses and, and Jesus actually asks uh, Peter, do you phileo me? Secondly, look at Peter's response. Every time Peter is asked if he loves Jesus, Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says, yes. And then thirdly, every time Peter says that he does, in fact, love Jesus, Jesus commissions Peter every time. He tells him to take care of the church every single time. And if all that was confusing for you and you got more questions, feel free to bring them after the service. But, but this is the point of what I'm trying to say. Our English translators were actually very wise to translate both agape and phileo as love and love. Because that's what they mean. They both mean love. So as we read these verses, what I'm asking you to do is try to erase your mind from if you've heard that interpretation in the past and just read these words afresh. So look at the text. Let's look to verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And we'll stop there. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, Peter loudly and publicly declared in front of the apostles, even if everyone else abandons you, Jesus, I will never forsake you. And so in verse 15, Jesus follows up on that claim. Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples do? 
And here, Peter doesn't try to compare himself with the other disciples. He doesn't talk about how he walked on water with Jesus or that he cut off the guard's ear in the garden or that he just jumped off the boat just then. He doesn't try to list up his accomplishments before Jesus. He simply responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus responds to Peter's humble answer by commissioning him. Peter is to take care of Christ's flock, his sheep. Don't miss that. Peter didn't have any sheep. You aren't my sheep. If you're a sheep, you're Jesus' sheep. Every pastor in every church is merely an under-shepherd of the great shepherd. Every pastor is merely tending to Christ's flock while Christ is away. The Faith Bible Church in Chestertown, they have a pastor. Thurman Baptist Church has a pastor. For the year and a half when the parsonage was empty, this church had a pastor. You had a shepherd. This church is not my church. This church is not your church. It's Jesus' church. And as the under-shepherd of this church, it's my job to care for the sheep of this church. But thankfully, it's not just my job. Ultimately, it's Jesus' job. And Jesus calls under-shepherds to be a part of this work, and he calls faithful members to also take care of this work. That if you're committed to this church, then it's your job as well to help care for your fellow sheep, which can be a hard job because sheep are stinky. They wander. Sometimes they bite. But to love Jesus means to love his sheep, to love his family, to love his church, even when it's difficult and it is often difficult. That's what Jesus is calling Peter to do. And if it was me here, that's where I'd end the conversation. It seems like that sums it up pretty well. But that's not where Jesus ends the conversation. Look with me to verses 16 and 17. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love him, you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Why does Jesus repeat himself again and again? Well, in the same way that Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus asked Peter if he loves him three times. And I think that's why in verse 17, Peter was grieved because he knew exactly what Jesus was doing. That Jesus, like a skillful surgeon, intentionally used words that he knew would cut Peter's heart. Three times Peter denied him, but three times Peter publicly repented and reaffirmed his love for his shepherd. Jesus confronted Peter on his sin. Jesus heard Peter's repentance. And then Jesus restored Peter to ministry. It's a beautiful process when you get to see it. This whole process of public forgiveness and public restoration is actually a process called church discipline. That, uh, for instance, there was a time in 1 Corinthians when Paul had to write to the church in Corinth because there was a member of the church who was sleeping with his father's wife, which was a pretty heinous sin even for the Gentiles back then. And the Corinthians were doing nothing about it. They said, we're all about love here at this church. They just swept it under the rug. And so Paul had to write to them and he told them to practice church discipline. And he told them, remove this man from the church. And I know that sounds really hard. 
it, it's very unpopular in our culture nowadays. Um, but Paul didn't tell the Corinthians to remove the, the man to be mean. He actually wrote that you should remove him with the hope that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Church discipline is always practiced with the hope of repentance and restoration. Church discipline is always practiced with the hope of John chapter 21. And that's why we jump to uh, 2 Corinthians. Paul is writing to the same church again. But now instead of sweeping the sin under the rug, they're refusing to forgive that man's sin, even though he had repented. The man who was sleeping with his father's wife had now turned from his ways, but the church was refusing to forgive him and restore him as a member. And the American church today totally falls into one of these two errors. Most often we see churches entirely neglecting the process of church discipline where sin is almost never confronted and it's usually just swept under the rug. Uh, But there are some cases when churches are entirely too quick to practice it, too harsh in the process, too quick to remove people, and then too hard on them when they do repent. The, The goal of church discipline is restoration. It's not to hurt someone or to shame someone, but to lead them to repentance. We do it because we care about the people in the church and we want to hold them accountable. And that's what Jesus is doing here with Peter. That in John 21, Jesus didn't say to Peter, okay, Peter, I died for your sins. Now your sin is no big deal. Jesus did not sweep Peter's sin under the rug. And when Jesus heard Peter's repentance, he didn't refuse to forgive him. No, Jesus confronted Peter on his sin. He heard Peter's repentance and then Jesus restored Peter to ministry. The Christian life does not require perfection, but it does require repentance. The life of a Christian is not marked by sinlessness, but by an attitude of turning away from sin. And here we see Peter displaying that attitude. We see Peter repenting and reaffirming his love for Jesus. And by the grace of Jesus, he's restored. And it's all done publicly with six witnesses. So now everyone in church history can point to this moment and say, yes, Peter is a real apostle. He's a real believer. He's been forgiven. We can trust him. Simon Peter, once again, an apostle and leader in the church. Restoration is possible because of the grace of Jesus. It requires repentance. But restoration is also displayed in following Jesus. Look with me to verses 18 through 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Stop there. Jesus immediately after forgiving Peter recommissions him. He warns Peter about what it'll cost him, that Peter is going to die for the cause of the gospel And Peter is not thrilled about this news. Look back to verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back and against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? 
Stop there again. We see Peter is not happy with how his life is going to end. So he looks to his right. He sees John and he says, what about him? And Jesus tells Peter that his plan is different for everyone. It was rumored back in the day that John was going to live forever. And he was the last apostle to die. But here in his own gospel, he's dispelling that rumor. And while he's doing that, he teaches us a very valuable lesson. The way that you and I serve within the church may look very differently. Your ministry may look entirely different from my ministry. The way for you to be faithful may mean very different things than me being faithful. Peter was to preach, pastor, and die. John was to teach, pastor, and live much longer and to care for the church for many more decades and then die. Jesus is saying to Peter, don't focus on other people. Worry about what I've called you to. And church history actually tells us that Peter would be crucified upside down because he refused the honor of being crucified in the same way Jesus was. Peter would be obedient to Christ's command to follow him because restoration is displayed in obedience to Christ. Peter would certainly not be perfect from here on out. There's actually a point where Paul has to go to him and rebuke Peter to his face because he messed up again. But Peter's life overall was dedicated to Jesus and marked by following Christ. And he dedicated the rest of his life to following Jesus by feeding his sheep and even by dying for Jesus. That's the natural result of restoration. That when someone is redeemed and restored by Jesus, it's only natural for that person to now follow Jesus. If we truly understand the grace of Jesus, it'll only be natural for our lives to display that as we follow Jesus, that he has forgiven us. He who has forgiven much, loves much, and he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And that's what we saw in the life of Peter. And then John ends his gospel with one of the greatest conclusions ever written. Look to verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The Gospels are not like modern biographies or newspapers. These are true stories, of course, but they weren't written to get every detail. This Gospel was written so that we could get everything we needed to believe, everything we need to know that these things are true. The grace of Jesus is powerful enough to save and it's powerful enough to restore. And my prayer this morning is that we would embrace that grace of restoration. Because in John 21, we found these three truths about restoration. Restoration is possible because Jesus is gracious. Restoration requires repentance and it's displayed in following Jesus. So let me ask you, do you need restoration today? Do you walk around smelling the charcoal fires of your failures and you're just living in despair? Jesus offers his grace today to you. Today, Jesus holds out his arm and he asks us two questions. Do you love him and will you follow him? <clears throat> All Christianity boils down to those fundamental questions and that leads us to our pastoral charges, our final pastoral charges in the gospel of John. I've got four of them. First pastoral charge, ask yourself, do I love Jesus? Ask yourself, do I love Jesus? 
All true religion boils down to that question. Do you love Jesus? If Jesus had asked Peter, are you converted? He may not have known the answer. If Jesus had asked Peter, are you born again? Have you been forgiven? Are you my follower? Peter may not have known the question, but he knew that he loved Jesus. I know many of you may struggle to know if you're a true believer or not, but ask yourself, do I love him? Does your soul sing for joy when you think of Christ? Is your heart warmed merely by reading his words? Of course, emotion alone is not enough to guarantee true faith. But where there is true faith, there will be true love for Jesus. Second pastoral charge, receive his grace and follow him. Receive his grace and follow him. Whether for the first time or the 500th time, if you come to him in repentance and faith, he will forgive you and he will restore you. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he paid it all at the cross. He paid it in full, all the sins of all who would believe, past, present, and future, nailed to that piece of wood. His grace is more than enough to cover your sin and your shame. So receive it today. But don't stop there. By the power of his grace, follow him no matter where he leads you. Third pastoral charge. Let me see. I think this actually might be the final pastoral charge. Let me see. Yeah, I only have three. Third pastoral charge. Seek to restore others to Jesus. Seek to restore others to Jesus. It starts with those in this church that if you stay in this church and you get involved and you get to know the Christians who are sitting around you, they will sin against you, sometimes in major ways. And if the love you have for your church is based in how wonderful the people around you are, get ready, ready to be disappointed. However, if the love we have for one another is based in our love for Jesus, then we'll be able to keep the sheep of this church. That means loving one another when we sin against one another. That means even confronting one another privately with the truth. And when they repent, forgiving and restoring one another. That our goal is not to be a perfect church, but a healthy church. Healthy churches uh, often have members who will sin against one another. But the members in those healthy churches will be quick to repent and quick to forgive. An unhealthy church's sin is swept under the rug, is never confronted, is never apologized for, and therefore is never forgiven. The goal is not for us to be a perfect church, but a healthy church that restores and forgives as Jesus has forgiven. And let me tell you, this process is often painful, but it's worth it. And restoring others to Jesus will also mean for us going out and telling others about the restoration and the grace Jesus offers. That we live in a mission field and we need to have the mindset that there's 10,000 people in a 10-mile radius of this church and 95% of them don't profess to have a relationship to Jesus. And Jesus has called this church to bring them this message of grace and restoration. And as we close on our study of the whole gospel of John, let me, let me close with a few final thoughts. The power of the church is not in the number of people we have, but in the power of our message. Our peace doesn't rest in our budget, in our tithes, in our offerings, but our peace rests in the promises of Christ. Success isn't measured by a growing church with more people, but success is measured by our faithfulness to Jesus, even if that means losing everything in this world. 
And on that note, let's pray. Almighty God, you are the great I am and your son is Jesus. If our hearts don't love Jesus, Lord, give us new hearts. If our love for Jesus is weak, Lord, give us more love. Strengthen our hearts. And by the grace of the cross, give us the power to follow you wherever you lead. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.